Medu, and I'm going to try to stay with the text today so we cover the, the ground of the concept, um, the necessary ground of the concept that Rav Chaim Lutzat is developing. <coughs> Essentially what Rav Chaim Lutzat wants to develop, and we've been discussing this in many different ways over the last couple of weeks, is the concept of God's oneness. What does the concept of God's oneness mean? What does it mean? And um, essentially what Ramesh Chaim Lutzat is going to say is that uh, beyond the concept of God just being an absolute existence, an absolute being, totally independent of any other being, which makes him one, because there is no second of that nature, there are many other concepts or ramifications for the concept of God's oneness. <coughs> and we're going to start from that point on page 30 the middle paragraph the Amnam but Iker HaYediyah HaZais the essentially the importance the importance of understanding this this concept He la pukei mimine svaris rais the, the reason that makes this so important stubborn person on the phone V'amnam Iker HaYediyah HaZais the reason why I'm going to go into the concept of God's oneness in great length is to exclude from many false philosophies that have fallen into the hearts of man through the generations. Right? In other words, it's not so simple, the concept of God's oneness. There were many mistakes that were made about con- uh, the concepts of God's oneness that um, spread themselves out amongst many different groups of people in different ways. And he wants to go through them. And interestingly, what Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat is going to do over here is he's going to give us an appreciation for the concept of God's oneness by comparison. In other words, by taking various philosophies, which are very uh, not necessarily uncommon to the world that we live in, and then asking ourselves the question, is, does, does that comply with God's oneness? then we come to realize, we come to crystallize the concept of God as one that's much, much clearer. Sometimes from the darkness one gets to appreciate the, the light. Okay? And that's essentially what he's going to do over here. He's not out to teach us five false philosophies, but by comparison he's going to give us a deeper appreciation of what God's oneness is all about. And essentially what Rav Moshchein Sata is then going to say is that in the same way that I explained to you God's oneness, by showing you the five false philosophies and then by comparison understanding what God's oneness is Ramesh Chaim is going to say that that's essentially the process that the world is in as well that the world lives by certain philosophies and then by the, the falling out of those philosophies little by little as people come to realize that those philosophies are not true they come closer to the concept of God's oneness so he's using it as, a, as an educational tool in terms of he's using it as an educational tool to appreciate the concepts of God's oneness God's oneness aside of being an educational tool it, tool it's also the process which is being put, which is uh, the world is in towards appreciating God's oneness as well and this is going to become clear mayhem some of the false philosophies that I will discuss for the sake of comparison to what God's oneness is all about that fell into the hearts of the people that worshipped Avodazar, worshipped idols, Umehem, Belev, Rav, Hamoin, Amhaaretz, and some of these concepts, which are false concepts, contrary to God's oneness, fell into the majority of the masses of the of the plain people. Mehem Belev, Gayehaaretz, and some of them fell into the hearts of the nations of the world. Umehem Belev, Pesha Yisrael, Harishainim, Asher and some of them fell into the hearts of the rebellious Jews that were fighting against God's ways and God's conduct with the Jews. So essentially what Rav Meshachim Lutzat is going to say is we're going to take in the, uh, almost the entire perspective of, of peoples. 
we're going to take in the different forms of idol worship and I, I know you're going to ask me in a minute well what do we have to do with idol worship but we'll see in a moment that uh, we're not so far away from some of the concepts of idol worship one group the, the masses of people what was common in belief to the masses of people the nations of the beliefs of the nations of the world vis-a-vis God's oneness outside of Avodah Zarah and then some of the concepts that were utilized by people that fought against or were rebellious against God's conduct with the Jewish people within our own ranks and from these four groups of people which include many many thousands if not millions of people all of them had concepts that were contrary to God's oneness so, and this is how he's going to develop it let's go through it one by one he next when we talk about idol worshippers, we can break up idol worshippers into two categories. Hanin the first grouping in the of Ovde Avodazar, people that worshipped in strange ways, Chashvu, they thought or they believed, that God is too exalted and too stoic an individual to have anything to do with this lowly world and God has better things to do than to be concerned or involved with what's going on in this world it started from a very orthodox pretext God is tremendous and unbelievable and because of all of this he has virtually nothing to do with, with, with this lowly world this olam and this lowest of all worlds and what Hashem has essentially is He has He has He has a um, a hierarchy of of people that work for Him, right? And what are they? The different stars and the, the constellations and the included in this are the laws of nature, all the different forms of the laws of nature, all of the different powers and all of the different natures. And they are what is taking care of the world at large. Right? In other words, in other words, that's their, the the job's got to get done. But certainly, the boss doesn't bother himself with every little with every little technicality. Just the big stuff goes to the boss. And in the same way, they understood Hashem's relationship to the world is that you can't talk to him. He's got better things to do than listen to you. What you have to do is you have to go through the different intermediaries. You have to go through the different secretaries, executive vice presidents, and the like. The al and therefore, let me just tell you what the result of this is. This, by the way, Maimonides talks a lot about this, the beginning of the laws of Avodah Zarah. This is the, in essence, Avodah Zarah started from this philosophy of not being able to reconcile Hashem's greatness with his involvement with man which by the way is not a contradiction uh, we'll talk about that in a moment but, there, there is, but in the mind of the philosopher there was a problem with this Hashem's greatness and his relationship to man in the eyes of the philosopher were seen as, seemed as contradictory terms and because of this the natural way to go was he has a hierarchy and you have to go through the secretary and the council and the diplomat and this might be many different things that Hashem established in His world, and you're worshiping those things in respect, not denying your belief in Hashem, but you're going through the necessary red tape to get your message across. Uh, something along that line. And therefore what they did is they established all kinds of services. And they made altars. Lahem Yizbechu, and they and they they had all kinds of sacrifices. Lahem Yaktiru, and to them they brought up all kinds of forms of incense. Laham Shekmehem Hashpal Latayalasam, in order to draw forth from them the necessary n- nourishment and nurturing that they believed were funneled and channeled through them. All right, this was one form of Avodah Zarah. I'll take a question on that. I noticed you had a question about that. You know, um, well, we've heard that like nations, nations have a, a star. Okay. Is that the same? I mean, 
Okay. Because what's the difference? No, that's that's a, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, the reference that you're making is really, if we would want to refer it, let's refer it to one specific example, right, so that everybody can relate to it, and then I'll answer the question. There is a concept which is brought down in our sages that every nation has a spiritual force, a spiritual general, as it's called. That, that governs its successes and failures, or seemingly governs its successes and failures. Uh, the reference that's made to this, that we have a direct contact with without creeping into books that are not for us at this point in time, is a Rashi and Chumash, where the, the Jewish people are leaving Mitzrayim, and they're running out into the desert as they were instructed to leave Egypt, and after a few days they become knowledgeable that the Egyptians have changed, have had a change of heart and are pursuing them into the desert. So it says that the, we looked back, and behold, they, they came to realize that Mitzrayim was running after them. Right? Now, if you look c- closely at the verse in the Chumash, it doesn't only say that, um, it, it, that they turned back, but it says they looked up and they saw Mitzrayim running after them. So the way you learn it without seeing Rashi is they most probably were in a valley and they looked up and they saw Mitzrayim on the mountain. But Rashi says that essentially what scared them when they looked back and realized that Mitzrayim was running after them wasn't the actual people of Mitzrayim, but it was this Tsar of Mitzrayim, this angel of Mitzrayim that they recognized was pursuing them into into the desert. Now this is a reference this is a mushal, this is an example of the reference that, that, was, that you just made about the concept of Tsar. Or a mala. Uh, or, or like a mala, like God has... Okay, a malach, uh, okay. A malach is a little bit of a different thing. I'll, I'll get to malach in a minute. Right, that's a, that's a, whole, a whole different thing. Okay, so now, so what's that concept of Tsar? And how does, it, how does it fit into this concept? Essentially what the concept of Tsar is, as, as Revelio Dessler explains it, the concept of a tsar is the ideology of that particular nation. That's when we talk about tsar, it's a symbolism. It's a symbolism of ideology. That's what it is. Um, when we say that an ideology is in um, is embodied in something, so we'll refer to it as a tsar. Why is it a tsar? Because a tsar is a ruler. It's a general. It's a ruler. It's a controller. It's a conductor somebody that's leading something in a certain direction. So symbolically, that's what a sar is, and it has power, it has force. It goes on the offensive. It, you know, it, it functions in unique ways. It goes out to war. It, it, it wants to impose its lifestyle, and things of that nature. So a sar is nothing more than a symbolism for us to be able to comprehend the... the, the um, the li- almost the life quality that's given to an ideology. So going back to the example that I cited for w- w- what you have been bringing up, Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, were concerned because not so much about the physical bodies that were running after them, but because the ideology had pursued them into the desert, which means that though they had geographically left Mitzrayim, they were still taking the ideology of Egypt was pursuing them, was running after them, that it should still be part of their lifestyle. And they understood that as long as the ideology was still part of them, they could still be taken back to Egypt because they hadn't, they hadn't, um, they hadn't taken themselves out, they hadn't extricated themselves from the spirit of Egypt. And just as long as you're not extricated from the spirit of Egypt and you haven't accomplished taking yourself out of the spirit of Egypt, the fact that you're geographically in a different place is not so terribly significant. So when the question came up, will we go back to Mitzrayim or not? Will they be successful to take us back? They said to themselves, there's a good reason to believe that they will be successful. 
because we know in our own hearts that the ideology of Egypt is pursuing us. We know that it's still a part of us. Obviously, we did not fulfill everything that we had to before we left Egypt. Maybe this is God's way of taking us back to finish what we had to finish. And therefore, they, w- they feared that they would have to go back. That's the concept. In other words, it's a, symboli- it's a symbolism like you talk about the hand of God and so on and so forth when you talk about those kinds of ideas. So the Tsar is also that kind of a concept. It's a symbolism in our terms to be able to understand how forceful an ideology can be that it's called a Tsar. Right? And in fact, the physical nature of a nation threatening us can only threaten us as long as the ideology is alive within us of that particular nation. But if we've elevated ourselves above that particular ideology, that nation can't really have any control over us. And that's why when the Jews really did accomplish a total, a total elevation from Egypt, the Tsar falls, which means the ideology falls. Once the ideology falls, the power of the nation also falls historically. That's why Mitzrayim historically fell away from, from being such a um, glorified culture after the Jew left Egypt. That's in the concept of Tsar. It does not speak in any way of, of, of Hashem giving over the, the rulership of that particular nation and the divine providence in the Hashgach Pratis to an individual, to a Tsar, to a secretary, to, to a secretary general, if you want to call it that. It, it has nothing to do with that at all. It's a symbolism for us to be able to understand the concept. That it's, that it's a force, it's a living force, it's a force that goes on the offensive, it's, an, it's a force that fights. You know, it's all to give us all of those concepts. Now, when we talk about malach, okay, when we talk about malach, the concept of a malach, which is translated into English as angel, is a bit different than the concept of, an, of, a, of a, a tsar. A tsar is an embodiment in a symbolism of, of a philosophy or a, a concept that the nation develops by its lifestyle, by its culture. A malach is the phenomena of God's will, of Hashem's will um, expressing itself in coming into this world to do something, to accomplish something. Do you follow what I'm saying? And it's again, it's a marshal, it's a symbolism. It's, it, in other words, we have no way of understanding how something comes into this world to perform a function except to give it a, a muscle, to give it an example. So we give it an example of being some kind of a supernatural being. It's not physical. It doesn't have the physical qualities or limitations. It does what it was sent to do. It doesn't have free choice. I mean, what kind of a thing is this? It doesn't have any physical boundaries because it can be in, in Mozambique, today and it can be in Los Angeles the next day and in Brooklyn, New York the next day and you know so how do we, how do we symbolize that? So the concept of Malach which is some kind of uh, a quasi-spiritual existence becomes the symbolism again, but that is, is an expression of Hashem's will Hashem sending something into this world that has to get accomplished for us, we need to, uh, to embody it in some kind of a, a form in order to be able to appreciate it, to be able to understand it. And it, it, it show up in forms for people, in order that people should understand that concept of something happening between Hashem and His world. Right? So, but that's more coming from Hashem's side, as opposed to the Tsar concept being something that is, came out of the choice of the nation, the choice of the nation in terms of lifestyle and culture. But either one of those two concepts has virtually no relationship to God giving power to a separate entity from himself and that, and that separate entity then going ahead and governing and doing and ruling and you have to talk to him before you talk to anybody else. That's, that's, that in either concept, Tsar or Malach, we don't talk about power being given to it as a separate entity. And that's why, by the way, we do not dive into Malachim. We don't pray to Malachim. There's no such thing in... in and I, I know you're going to throw at me certain things, certain tefillos, which seem to be addressed to Malachim. Uh, Shalom Aleichem, Malach Asharis being one of them. Those of you that are familiar with the Slichos know that there is one particular verse which says, Malach Rachmim, you know, hear my pleas for compassion and bring them before the Creator of the world. Which, by the way, 
the Ga'an, the Vilnagayan and others took out of the text because of the confusion in the philosophy that it would have created for the person to believe that you can daven to a malach. There's no such thing as davening to a malach. Right? We have to reconcile what Shalom Aleichem is all about. Right? But there is no concept of davening to a malach, which tells you, again, the same idea, that we're not talking about power being given to another entity. Right? Extending beyond this, if we want to get down a little bit more brass tacks, if we're not worried about malachim and sarim, but we want to relate, you know, like that in a down-to-earth way, uh, this also applies to the laws of nature, in the sense that many of us understand the laws of nature in the following way. Hashem establishes the law, but once the law is established, it functions independently. In other words, Hashem creates the law of gravity. If Hashem wouldn't have created the law of gravity, so gravity wouldn't work. There was nothing before Hashem created the world. Hashem creates the law of gravity. Right? And most of us, if we would make a statement of that nature, we would think that we are being supreme believers in, in the total echad of Hashem. That is on the way, but is not full swing into what the concept of Hashem and nature is all about. The authentic, the deepest concept, the fullest concept of the, uh, Hashem's relationship to nature is not that Hashem creates a law and now the law governs because Hashem created it. And it's not even that Hashem creates it and now it works, but Hashem always reserves the right of veto power on the law of nature. But that every single moment the law of nature is a manifestation of Hashem's will for it to be functioning that way. And were Hashem's will to be suspended for one moment, the, the, that law wouldn't slowly disintegrate, but it would be absent from existence because its whole existence is a, a manifestation or an expression of Hashem's will. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? It's, it's brought out very, very clearly in something that I once discussed. Maybe we'll just develop it a little bit more so that we, we can understand it. Um, when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were threatened to be thrown into a furnace of fire for not having bowed down to uh, the idol that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had made, so there was a discussion, so to speak, in, in Shemayim, in heaven, exactly how to save Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. How are we to save them? So the Yerkami, Sarshal Barad, Yerkami, who was the one that was responsible for the hail that comes into this world, stands before Hashem and says, I want to make a hailstorm to extinguish the fires of this particular furnace to save Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To which the Tsar of Eish, the power of, of, of fire, stands before Hashem and says, nothing doing. There's no big deal for hail to come into this world and to extinguish a fire. Everybody knows that hail extinguishes fires. I'll come into this world and what I will do is I will make it hotter from the outside and cooler from the inside and I will make one miracle within another miracle because whoever heard of an air conditioning system working with heat giving off heat but that's what the the the, the angel of, of Aish of fire said said to Hashem and Hashem agreed with the with with the, the petition of the, the force of fire and the force of fire came into this world and made it hotter and hotter from the outside and cooler and cooler from the inside and Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah were saved from what seemed to be a terrible inferno. So the question that always comes up is that I think that if you would be, certainly in California, but if you would be sitting in any kind of a scenario where you would see three people being put into a deep fry and all of a sudden there's a hailstorm that, that extinguishes the whole thing I think that would be pretty miraculous. Right? I think that would be pretty miraculous. So for the representative or the, of, of, of Aish coming and petitioning and saying, no, that's kid stuff, because everybody knows that hail puts out fire. I want to come into this world. It seems to be pushing it a little bit. Like, and what difference does it make? One thing is a miracle, the other thing is a miracle. It's a bigger miracle. I mean, what, what is that supposed to mean exactly? So the Avni Neza points out exactly what we're just saying right now. If hail comes into this world and extinguishes the fire, all we can say about Hashem is the following. Hashem establishes laws of nature. Once those laws of nature are there, 
They are independent players. The only thing that can happen is one can be pitted up against the other. One can be put up against the other, and then one can fight the other, one can overcome the other. Fire is a power, water is a power, and uh, depending upon the relationship in terms of distance and volume and other things, one can extinguish the other or one can heat the other, depending upon those elements. But one is a force and the other is a force. And the most that Hashem can do once He created His world is He can try to bring two elements together in order to, so to speak, to uh, neutralize what one would be doing as opposed to the other. But that would be an admission to the fact that Hashem establishes laws of nature, and once those laws of nature are established, everything works within those laws of nature. What Hashem can do is He can reorganize things that one element reaches the other element, and each one functioning in its unique way, one fights off the other. So what the, the representative of Aish was saying is, that falls short from what you want to teach. What you want to teach is that the whole of nature is nothing more than a manifestation of Hashem. It's not that something in nature can perform opposite of Hashem. Every moment that anything in nature functions is functioning because it's a manifestation of Hashem's will to function in that way. So therefore, the Aish said, let me, who are, in other words, the manifestation of Aish itself, let me come down, so to speak, with your will not to function as fire, and the fire will naturally not function as fire. Or at least it will function on one level as fire and not on another level as fire. And that, then the point is that nature is not a separate power that Hashem is in control of, but nature is nothing more every moment except a, ma- a physical manifestation of Hashem's will for something to happen, right? In the form of fire, in the form of water, whatever the form might be. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? And essentially, right, and essentially, that's the extent of how far this concept goes. In other words, what Rav Dessler is saying is that if a person says that the law of nature, the laws of nature were established by Hashem and He created them, and maybe He reserves veto power to intervene in the function of it, that is a step in Amuna. Okay, and it's not a, it's not an insignificant step in Amuna but it certainly falls short of what our total emuna is. Because when we talk about Hashem Echad, what Hashem Echad really means is that there's nothing else that really exists independently at all. Right. And everything is a constant manifestation of Hashem's will. I mean, it's a very, very deep concept, but it's a constant manifestation, nothing more and nothing less than a manifestation of Hashem's will doesn't have any measure of independence where there has to be intervention or there has to be an external movement to change it afterwards. It doesn't, doesn't work that way unless Hashem pulls back and Hashem says that, you know, Hashem says that for the sake of Bechir and for the sake of choices and for the sake of challenges, I will make certain things appear to man as independent forces. What Hashem did when He created nature is He definitely made it appear as being a separate manifest, uh, as being a separate force. He definitely created it that way. But essentially, man's development goes in the form of seeing more and more deeply, not only intellectually but emotionally, that it's nothing more than a manifestation of Hashem. And when a person really sees it clearly, right, so the same the same way that oil can burn, vinegar can burn. But a person has to really feel that before it's going to happen to them. At, at, before the person is at that point, it's not going to happen because Hashem imposed a concealment. He imposed this distance, this seeming independent entity that nature has. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is way off to the other extreme of the concept that he's talking about. But that's the extent... Okay? When we talk about the fact that Hashem didn't give power over and it doesn't function independently, we, when we l- look at this very simply, what do we say? Uh, uh, yeah, of course, it means don't bow down to the sun, bow down to Hashem. It goes much, much deeper. And what it's saying is that the power is nothing more than a manifestation of Hashem on a constant basis. So when you're saying, I'm not, I, don't, I can't talk directly to Hashem, I have to talk to the sun, that's... that's, that's, uh, that's um, that's a misconcept. That's, that you're missing the, the whole concept. 
a relationship to the to the sun is nothing more than a manifestation of 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 the will of Hashem. It's an extension of Hashem's hand, so to speak, or Hashem's will. It's not an independent thing altogether. There's no secretary there. There's no general there. And it's a manifest. It's a physical manifestation of Hashem's will. The physical manifestations of Hashem's will show up in certain forms: heat, cold, in all of the different forms of nature. Those are physical manifestations of. Uh, maybe a lot of ramifications for this, but I'm not going to go into it. I saw that there was a question here. This distinction that you're making between those two levels. Yeah. yeah. Is that the same as the same distinction when Hashem turns His face, like we hear many times, somebody says Hashem turns His face away, and when He doesn't turn His face away. From Boy, you're, you're three for three tonight. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah, no, that 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 definitely is. That definitely is. What I mean to say is the following. We usually think that when Hashem's turned to the person, that's so there's a divine providence formula. When he turns away, it's a free for all. Right? That's that's the dangerous part of this concept. That's the mis- that's the p- the part that's very unclear in people's minds. When Hashem turns away, it doesn't mean a free for all, but the turning away is also accurately measured out that the circumstances that will naturally arise are Hashem's will, but they function in, in what in in what would seem quote unquote a natural order as opposed to an involvement of Hashem. This, it's, it's again, it's a very deep concept that Rav Chaim Litzata talks about later on. But the whole concept of hurt, damage, and things of that nature, where they are, um, you know, in forms of punishment, as, a, as, a, as opposed to pure forms of love, cannot exist where there is a, a complete involvement of Hashem in the person's life. A complete connection and a complete involvement of Hashem to the human being is a situation that only has bracha in it, only has blessing in it, with the exceptions when we talk about Yisurim Shalava, afflictions of love, which is a whole separate thing. But by and large, where there is real connection between Hashem and the human being, that's a state of bracha, that's a state of blessing, that's a state of of, of total good. Uh, and, and therefore, all of the conditions by which Hashem, quote-unquote, turns away, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. It, it's different levels of involvement. And the measured levels of involvement are hashgacha. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's very aptly described in an extreme form in Shir Hashirim, where, where it says that Hashem goes behind the wall but is looking through the cracks. Right. There is such an expression in Shir Hashirim that he's meitzitz min hacharakim, which means that in essence he's turned away, a wall has been thrown up, which man would like to believe Hashem b- built, but essentially man has built the wall. But, uh, but uh, because it's our unwillingness for Hashem's involvement that it, uh, is what discourages Hashem's involvement and, cre- and moves Hashem, so to speak, in what you refer to as away from the person. But it's it's a it's a you know it's 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 very much not a human concept because in human concept it's either I want to have to do with you I don't want to have to do with you but not wanting to have to do with you and not having to wanting to have to do with you is having to do with you is a very sophisticated concept you sometimes find it skilled teachers when they used to have to develop their disciples used to do it. Sometimes they gave a tremendous amount and sometimes they used to be able to hold the reins of how much they gave and how much they didn't give and they used to be able to, to develop the person in that way as well. Uh, the story is told of Rav Hutna Zechariah who I had the, the privilege of learning by for a number of years that when he was growing up in Slabatka, that was the, the Ivy Leagues of Yeshivas in, in Europe, that the the Alta from Slabatka, as he he was referred to, was um, was um, a master at the development of the individual, as opposed to developing masses of people all in one mold. He used to be able to understand the individual as an individual, and no two individuals were treated in the yeshiva the same. Everybody was treated in a different way. 
so the story is told and it, it's been told over through him and by others so it, it's a rather reliable story the story is told that uh, around Rosh Hashanah time the Alta von Slabatka uh, essentially told Rav Hutner, who wasn't Rav Hutner then who was a disciple in the yeshiva that he wants him to go out of his Dalat Amis that go out of my eight, you know the eight feet radius around me I don't want you anywhere near me Right. And essentially, and essentially, uh, on many attempts before Rosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah, be- between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, he tried to to approach the Alta from Slabatska just to get some form of an explanation from him. And every time he came close, the Alta ran backwards, not to be in the eight in the in the Dalit Amis in the eight feet of the. So obviously, after a while, Rifutna got the inkling that that for some reason the Alta had put him in Cherem. He had excommunicated him from a personal relationship. And he didn't really know why. But essentially, the way the story goes is that that Yom Kippur, Rifutna cried the entire Yom Kippur. Like, what did he do wrong? And what was the Alta expecting of him uh, that he did this? And immediately after Yom Kippur, he made a tremendous turn. Uh, and he developed tremendously. And then the Alta took him back in. Now, you know, if the Alta would have tried that on another individual, it could have been, he could have, another individual could have been destroyed by that. You know, he would have left the yeshiva and and never come back. But the Alta understood that he had the, he had the ability to be able to take this and, and to do something with it, you know. So you have to measure, you have to measure it out. So now using that as an example, there's another example, but I don't want to start becoming a storyteller now. There's a fabulous story, maybe a different time, uh, we'll get into with, uh, there was a certain Magid, the Kalama Magid, that did a similar thing with somebody that was a miser, somebody that were, that used to, was treasonous. He used to tell on Jews to the government. And he also, he made him into a Balchuva by working on certain, certain aspects that he knew were strong aspects. And after he developed him, then he, you know, he let down the boom on the things that he had done wrong. It was a fascinating story. I'm not going to go into it right now. But the point being, take this instance of the Altafun Slabotka with Rav Hutner, okay, if it's a reliable story. The Alta didn't let him into his Dalaramas, quote unquote. So that was a function of turning away. But the function of turning away was, in essence, a handlarai. It was a form of development. It was a form of development that was being accomplished by abstention. Do you follow what I'm saying? And that's essentially, even though it's hard to understand every possibility, but that's the way we're supposed to perceive Hashem's turning away, quote-unquote, the hesterpanim that we talk about. The only thing that is true is that the state of bracha, the state of blessing definitely is much more deficient in, in, in a Hester Punim situation. And what we talk about is beer levels of existence, of coming by. We don't talk about phenomenal states of bracha when that Hester Punim is in existence. But that is not to say that there isn't a function of Hashgacha Pratis in that turning away that Hashem does. And it's, that, it's a very tenuous balance that only Hashem can measure and know, knowing the Neshama of Klal Yisrael and knowing what's expected of Klal Yisrael at a moment in time, when that Hestapanam is applicable and when it's not. <coughs> okay. The Alkain... Okay. Now, Hamin Hashani, the second category, Amru, the second category said, Chas v'chalila. Okay, Chas v'chalila. No, God forbid. Shte Rishuyasheng. There are two separate domains. Echad Payal Taiv, the Echad Payal Ra. There are two separate domains. Excuse me again. Echad Payal Taiv, the Echad Payal Ra. There are two separate domains. That's how they resolved it. For Amram, in hepach belay hafache. There's no such thing. In hepach belay hafache. There is nothing in this world that doesn't have its equal opposite. In hepach belay hafache. Uviyos hakel yisbarach shmei tachos hatayv. And being that Hashem is the epitome of good we have the second line on the next page 
There has to be an equal opposite force of evil. And because and from these two sources, everything that occurs in this world is responsible from those two sources. Okay, some of them are good and some of them are bad, depending upon which one is awake that day. And this is the concept, There was this heretic that said to Amemar that he believes that the conduct of the world is symbolized in the top half of the body and the bottom half of the body. Which means that there are essentially two conducts in the world that are opposite each other, and everything in this world is comes either from the top half or the bottom half, or a combination or blends of top and bottom together. This is the second philosophy, and this is also a philosophy of Avodah Now, why is it a philosophy of Avodah Zarah? Because it's in the same way that attributing godly power to other forces and then worshipping them is Avodah Zarah, saying that there is more than one force that governs the world is also a form of Avodah Zarah. That's referred to as Shitov, partnership. Right? That's a form of Avodah Zarah. Essentially we're saying that the, the world is being governed by two forces. God is the, is the good guy and he's responsible for everything good and then there is another God, the God of evil, so to speak, that, uh, that's responsible for everything negative that's happening. And this was another form and don't laugh but this was a extremely common philosophy through time. Right? According to many of the concepts of sacrifice were to appease forces that existed. I'm sure those of you that are familiar with different philosophies and cultures historically know that the whole, the whole concept of sacrifice in many religions was to the appease negative forces, the, the, the god of anger, the god of this, the, you know, and the, the god of jealousy and this and that and the other thing. And this was also a very common thing. Now, again, without getting under anybody's skin, we, we are not so distant from this form of Avodah either. We also tackle this. We want to be able to believe only in Hashem of good. And all of the negative things, we don't exactly know where they come from, but they're an independent thing. Yeah. The concept of randomness, of negative activity, uh, from a philosophical standpoint, is extremely close to what Rav Meshachayim Lutzata is identifying here as Avodah Zarah. Because when we talk about certain things being random and being out of Hashem's control to intervene, we are essentially attributing force and independence to another another kalach, to another to another power. If we say that there are certain things that happen, that have to happen, right, and Hashem's not in control and can't intervene because if he could he would. So that's that that's this that, that's this philosophy. No, but he, he chooses not to. Not that he not that he can't control, but for whatever reason Well I'm referring to Kushner in particular. No, if you you read it carefully, essentially he says that the, the, we have to uh, we have to forgive God for the things that he can't be in control of. There are certain things that that he just can't have it, he can't be in control of everything. So there are certain things that happen even though he doesn't want them to happen. Or chooses. I have it underlined. Underlined. You can't forgive him for a bad choice. Yeah, you can forgive him for what he can't help himself with. What? Chooses to be uninvolved. I don't have it in front of me. No, no Jewish home should have it. But uh, I don't have it in front of me. But uh, but um, it's it's very it's there's a specific quote of that nature. Yeah. You used that term last week when you said that he gave us the Bechira and therefore he cannot be involved because it would take away the Bechira. Yeah. So you so use the term cannot. Uh, is there any contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction, but the cannot is... Uh, just using the term cannot, I think, is a problem. Because cannot okay, is it could be. can't do, but he can do it. Okay, could be. doesn't choose to do it. It's not Ritzono. It's not his will to do it. But that's that that discussion that we had in terms of Bechira is dramatically different from this discussion. 
Right? Let me let me crystallize a little bit what this is. I mean, we're not going into teaching false philosophy, but let me tell you. Let me try to expound on this um, a little bit more clearly, because when we're not so sophisticated in our philosophies also altogether to be able to know the sophistication of this false philosophy. You know, real real kfira, real apicursus, is is a graduate course. Uh, you know, it's not. You know, it's not something that we gain by virtue of not knowing, by ignorance. You know, the famous story of Yasal of Apicyrus, you're familiar with the story of Yasal of Apicyrus? It was a famous Apicyrus in a, in a town in Poland. And uh, somebody decided that he wanted to become an Apicyrus, he wanted to become a heretic. So he heard about this famous Yasal of Apicyrus. So he went to his home to study under him how to become a good Apicyrus. So he came early in the morning and he knocks on the door and uh, Yasla Apicyrus is unavailable. He's not home. And he comes back a few hours later. He's unavailable. A few hours later, he's unavailable. Finally, at the end of the day, he's exasperated. He says he's going to try once more. And as he knocks on the door, he sees Yasla Apicyrus walking down the street, coming home from the base madrish coming home from the study hall with a Gemara on the one hand and a Shulchan Aruch on the, the, on the other hand. And he says, excuse me, is this, uh, are you Yasal Apikairis? Yes, I've been waiting for you all day. He said, but I have one problem to be start with. What are you doing with a Gemara and a Shulchan Aruch? What are you doing with a tractate of the Talmud and a Shulchan Aruch? So Yasal looks at him and says, listen, you have to know something to be an Apikairis. <laughs> right? And the, the truth of the matter is that our appreciation of this apicursus over here is, is uh, falls short. We don't really appreciate what it, what the negativity of it because we don't have the sophistication to begin with. But let me try to at least paint a picture of the, the falseness of this philosophy. And it goes very, very deep. The, the, the warpedness of this philosophy. This philosophy says the following, that the same way that there's a power of tov, there's a power of good in the world, which is which is um, a metzius. It has existence. It has substance. It has a wholesomeness to it. There is an equal existence of evil in the world. It's an entity. It's a thing. It's a, it's it's a living thing. It's a force of equal nature. It's just going in the opposite direction. Instead of do, it says don't do. Instead of saying uh, instead of don't do, it says do. But it's an equal force in, in substance and nature. It's just of an equal. Let's take the words of Rav Meshachem, let's have this seriously. There is no force that doesn't have its equal opposite force. Which means in every way it's equal, except that it's going in the opposite direction. Right? That's what the philosophy is saying. Now, Essentially, what a Jewish, a Jewish philosophy says is that there is no mitzius ra. There is no equal entity of evil to taif. Because in, 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 in interpretation, which Ramesh Chaim Latzata is going to give later on, evil is the absence of a condition, mm. not the positive existence of a condition. It's the absence of taif. It lives in, 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 in the emptiness, in the void of taiv, something else takes over. But it's a condition that thrives on nothingness. It's a condition that thrives on the lack of wholesomeness. It's not a wholesome entity just going in the opposite direction. I mean, I know wholesome is a bad word because wholesome is, is a word that we attribute value to. But it's not a mitzius, it's not the existence of something, it's the lack of the existence of something. Right? In other words, tov, good, is not the absence of evil. Mm. But evil is the absence of, of tov. Okay? Tov is, is tov because it's tov. Right? The way that God exists because God exists, tov exists because it's tov. Because it's, 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 it's in compatibility with the essence of God. On the other hand, evil is seen as the conditions which come to be by the absence of that type, uh, by the absence, by the void of that wholesome condition, the conditions that then play are negative conditions, which can become seemingly very strong forces that push human beings in certain directions, but never to be mistaken to be the same kind of a thing. So as, as, as equal as Hashem sometimes makes these forces in order to challenge us, 
essentially in in the in the in the guts of it they're not the same. In the guts they uh, there is a, an essential difference between the two. Taif is in, is an inherent is an inherent quality. It's an inherent existence. While Ra is not. It's the absence of. Right? Which is, which is, uh, it's a whole thing, there's a whole chapter, the creation of evil, in Rav Meshachem which is going to come up later. Now, this particular philosophy, this particular philosophy runs in the face of what I just said now. Right? Because this philosophy says, no, not only does evil exist, but there's a God of evil. With everything that we attribute to the concept of God, there is a God of evil. There's, there's this supreme being that is, is, the, is the manifestation of evil, is a god of evil. And then, from that point further, everything in this world is governed by one or by the, by the other. I see this raises a lot of questions. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the original story of evil versus good, the god of evil, right? It certainly seems like I mean, there was no lack of good to precede evil's appearance. There was. What was the lack of good? The lack of good isn't so much what exists in nature. There's a whole chapter on this. It's probably the most difficult chapter in the whole book. But... uh, as I pointed out before, and I wasn't just trying to be poetic, the barriers, the walls that go up are the walls that we create, not the ones that Hashem makes. The particular, if you go through Rav Desla's explanation of Chet Adamarishan, very, very meticulously, one comes to realize that the absence was the, ple- the that point where the, the ego of man wanted to accept himself as an equal with Hashem. Now that's a very that's a that's a very broad statement, but in the ego of man there is a capacity to want to believe oneself somewhat, very very deep down in the recesses of a human ego, as an equal in existence to Hashem, being a created being, and not being the creator. We are immediately removed from the concept of creator, because we're created. And to jump the, the distance of knowing the distinction between being cr- a created being as opposed to being the creator right, is, is a, a constant conflict that we have that's, that's wrapped up in the human ego problem. And what Rav Dessler essentially says is that what, it, what was at the deepest root of other Mauritians' problem was an ego problem. To the extent that there was an ego problem, it was to that extent that there wasn't a total acceptance of the mitzvahs of Hashem, of the of the 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 all-encompassing existence of Hashem vis-à-vis man in relationship to man, and to the extent that the ego barred or pu- pushed away some of that existence of Hashem, there is an emptiness, there is a void, and in that void the possibility for something negative to come into being is there. In, in, in fact, it's very fascinating. Once you got me on this, our Chazal say that the, the one personality trait, more than any other, that creates a void in the presence of Hashem in this world is, is ego. You know the story that's... Uh, the story... What? Ego as... E- no, ego as ego. The, do you know this, the story? The story told of the Rebbe, right? if I'm not mistaken, of the Chassid. The Chayvus Halvavis brings this down. This is not a Baba Meisah. The Chayvus Halvavis, Ibn Bachiyev of Pakudu, brings this story down about the person that had a choice. He was coming into a city, and for some reason, he only had a choice of staying in one of two homes, and each one had a problem. Sounds like the current events of today. In one home, the person was a suspect of adultery. And in the other home, the person was known to be the most arrogant human being that ever walked the face of the earth. And this chassid had a problem in which home would he reside. It was one of the two or in the street. Maybe the street would have been the better option. But it was one of these two. And the chassid went into the home of the person that was suspect of adultery. And when the chassid was asked how he made that choice, 
okay? It wasn't because the person made light of it with jokes, but it was because, right, it was because he brought, a, he brought a clear proof. And the Torah says that on the one hand, that Hashem resides with us even in the midst of our impurities. That's one verse. And then there's another verse which says, that Hashem has a tremendous hatred for the arrogant to the point that Hashem tells us that I and him can't live in one place together which essentially doesn't mean that Hashem walks out it means that the arrogance of man locks Hashem out of an existence with that person so what this chassid said is it's very simple Hashem never said that he can't live with us with impurity but he did say that he can't live in a state of arrogance so applying the same rule this chassid said that learning from Hashem I could more easily stay in the home of a person that was suspect of adultery as opposed to the house of a person that was terribly, tremendously arrogant so if there's anything that creates the emptiness more than anything else it's arrogance, it's ego now it's not the time to go through it we'll have an opportunity to go through the development that Rivalio Desla says how he proves that it was an ego problem that was essentially at the root of it but if you even look in Rashi and Chumash there are hints to this the, the ego element the fact that Adam added on to Hashem's command no, Hashem's command wasn't enough. Adam had to add on. You're not allowed to eat and you're not allowed to touch. The fact that Rashi says, um, makes reference to the fact that Adam believed that if he would eat from this, he would become like God. And he would be able to create worlds. Okay, Whatever that means on, on, on deeper veins, but it definitely has its basis not in a, in a humble being, but in, in a human being that's looking for, for forms of venting uh, satisfaction of ego. Right? I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but he was such a perfect being, so how did he have a problem of ego, mm-hmm. which is which, which Revelio Odessa deals with. But that would be a marshal if you would want to have an example of that. Right? That's not to minimize the power of the Eight Sahara. The Eight Sahara is fabulously powerful, but it's not the same thing as saying that it's an equal but opposite entity to Taif. That sort of implies that in other words, it can, it can move a person and it can create a struggle within a person equal to, to, to the side of taif. Right? But it doesn't mean that in entity it's the same thing. In other words, in the end, evil has to, has to, has to dis- disappear. Taif doesn't have to. Right? Evil is the absence of Hashem. The absence of Hashem obviously will go out of existence. But that which permeates and is representative of qualities of Hashem has eternity to it as Hashem has, to the extent that it's an expression of taif. In a sense, the desire to have total knowledge is that ego, is it not? I mean, total knowledge? Yeah, well, total knowledge, definitely. To know, he wanted to know the difference between good and evil. Isn't that what the problem was? I mean, that was the reason for eating from the tree to begin with. Not just... No, but that, that's the understanding that Hi, I have. On its simplest form, that, that's true. I mean, Leo Dessler uh, gives, you know, develops the concept with a little bit more sophistication. Because the, the search for knowledge is, in and of its own right, is not, uh, is not a negative thing. I know it's not, but at the same time, it can be. And I wonder sometimes if... Well, I think in terms of myself... Uh, don't want it to the extent where it could become problematic. So, uh, or maybe the way, I don't know. But uh, Upon this, a great man once said, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never believed him. <laughs> <laughs> what causes Siddiquim to have a greater Yetzirah? If they keep having more and more good in their lives, and there's less and less of a void, then how come their Yetzirah goes to... It, it's not simple. It's not simple what Kalagadol Mechaver Yitzra Gadol Hemenu means. You're referring to a, a particular saying of our sages, the lesson of our sages, that says the person who is greater than his friend, his Yetzirah, his negative inclination is also greater. It's not completely simple 
what that means. All right? uh, to assume that if A, who is not such a big person, has a gross Yetzirah, uh, B, who is greater, has even a grosser Yetzirah, is definitely not true. Right? Uh, as people are greater, the, the nature of the Yetzirahs are different Yetzirahs. I mean, everybody will agree to that. Um, it's not simple exactly what Kal HaGadol Mechaver Yitzra Gadol Hemenu means. It's not simple what it means. Uh, according to the Maral's interpretation, it, it means the person who is potentially greater, not who is actually greater. Uh, which e- immediately dismisses, you know, the, you know, the whole notion that if you're bigger, your Yitzhar is automatically bigger. Uh, but even if we weren't to go with that definition, even if we weren't to go with that definition, the, um, sometimes the biggest Yetzirahs are within a religious context. Does that sound perplexing? Let me, let me, let me, let me explain. You know, there's a, there's a difference of opinion when Yaakov fought again with this angel, which was a personification of a force, the negative force, an evil force, there's a dispute in the Talmud, what did he look like to Yaakov? What did he appear? There was a physical fight, aside of the fact that on philosophical levels they were, they were battling to the throne, so to speak, but there was also a physical fight. So there's a discussion in the Talmud, what did he look like? All right? So there's two